Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Uh, welcome to the second episode of the NASCAR and NBC podcast. We have an introduction this week, and we also will start with an apology. Uh, I'm battling a pretty nasty head cold, and I've been battling it for about the better part of a week, so it's plainly obvious uh, I have no upper register, and I sound even a little bit worse in the interview you're about to hear. So please bear with me um, for all of that. And uh, while I feel much better then I sound today, I was in a little bit of fog when we taped this yesterday, which was Monday, February 8th. However, I might, I might have said that we taped it Tuesday, February 8th. Uh, it was taped Monday, February 8th. So apologies uh, for that confusion uh, and for any mathematical errors that um, I commit in, in the future course of, these, of this podcast. I'm, I'm a journalism major and I, I frequently make these sorts of errors. So bear with me on that front as well. Uh, nonetheless, we have a great conversation. Uh, we spoke with Steve Wittart, who is, of course, the analyst for NBC Sports, uh, has been part of the team here since last year, uh, makes weekly appearances on NASCAR America, and also is in the booth for NBC's 20 race schedule uh, in the second half of the Sprint Cup season. Uh, and of course, he came from the NASCAR garage. He, he worked in this sport his entire life, started as a teenager at Hendrick Motorsports, was a crew chief for Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt Jr. in NASCAR's Premier Series, has 15 victories as a crew chief, nearly took Jeff Gordon to the 2007 title. And just beyond all that, what, what Steve is just terrific at is he can take NASCAR, which can sometimes be a convoluted, nuanced sport, and translate it into plain English for the layman and for the casual mainstream fan. And I, I think you'll find that he does that frequently throughout this conversation that we have. Uh, he's just he's very good at being able to put things in, in real world terminology and relatable, uses great analogies, and I think you'll hear that. Uh, as I mentioned, we, we, we taped it on Monday, February 8th, so it was before Tony Stewart's replacement driver was announced. Uh, we did talk, however, much about Tony Stewart and what it means uh, for the number 14 team. Of course, we don't know who the driver is going to be. We, we know it's going to be a, a big shift for that team. And Steve has some experience with that, uh, having lost Dale Earnhardt Jr. to a concussion for two races during the 2012 season. He had some, some great insight on, on what that was like and how the team 
adapted to that. He also had some really good perspective on Tony Stewart possibly being back with the team before he's cleared the race, unlike the leg injury he suffered a few years ago. Uh, in this case, it, I think we'll see Tony back at the track uh, for a significant amount of time before he actually can get in the car and race. And Steve had some great thoughts on how that might actually help both Tony Stewart and the team. Uh, we also talked about what's, what Steve is expecting from the 2016 season with the new rules, lower downforce, and for all you Dale Earnhardt Jr. fans, talked about some of his uh, best memories uh, about from the number 88 and, and what it was like to make that transition if he harbored any regrets or, or if it still gets to him uh, on, on Sunday mornings. He was, he was great on that. Uh, before we get into the podcast, I uh, have some thank yous. First, the two technical wizards who, who put this show together, Jeremy Sides, who is uh, the engineer here. Uh, he bought the really cool-looking antique mics that you see in the photos I've been tweeting from our elaborate podcast studios here at NBC Sports Charlotte. So not only is he really good with uh, technical stuff, he, he also has style. Uh, also would like to thank Joel Maydak, um, who has listened to every single word of this podcast in real time, ensuring that we have the correct audio levels, everything's proper. Um, really appreciate all the time he's invested in that. Uh, Joel is a, a fantastic producer. And finally, I want to thank uh, John Barnes, who uh, He's, I suppose, the de facto executive producer. Not that we have titles yet for this rather rather humble and modest endeavor, but um, Barnes has been a believer in this uh, since the jump. Uh, he was instrumental in getting it launched and really appreciate um, his support. And plus, he, he likes good music and he's a really funny guy. So anyway, without further ado, let's hear Steve Wittart. Welcome to the second episode of the NASCAR and NBC podcast. This week, we're joined by Steve Letarte, who is not only an NBC sports analyst, but also former crew chief, Hendrick Motorsports in the Sprint Cup Series, won a lot of races with Jeff Gordon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. in his second year at uh, NBC. And uh, hey, former makes me feel old. Sorry. I mean, holy. I mean, I was like non-active. A, I'm just saying that was like a pretty serious intro right there. Like, you know, he used to crew chief. He won a little bit. Now he talks on TV. I was told not to touch the mic, not to scratch the table. There's a lot of rules. But Joel's particular. We got that's okay. Got that's all right. Here. Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, we have a very fastidious guy making sure this sounds it's good. a big word. Good. All right. So uh, non-active crew chief. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, no matter what you're doing, you're really good at it. Like, all right. I like I, it. I, I, I like it. that compliment out. Man, I'll be here more. This sounds good. Uh, so briefly... What have you been doing lately? I understand you were just in Jacksonville for... Yeah, so, you know, the off-seasons are different now that I don't have a race team to prepare for Daytona. Um, you try to spend time with your, your connections throughout the sport, try to understand what's going on, especially with the rule changes, the potential of the charter system. There's so many things coming up in the horizon for NASCAR. And then uh, I was down in Jacksonville racing, of course, with my son in go-kart. Once you're a racer, you can't really shake it. So we decided to go to the WKA, the national event down there. And uh, we've never traveled, so it was a learning experience. There were some stressful moments that didn't go quite as smooth as we want some days. But in the end, he ran every lap of the final race, made a good pass. So it was good. What's it like being team owner? Uh, you're team owner and crew chief. I would and, think, right? None of the above is what I found out. See, oh, I really? thought I was. <laughs> and then um, karting is very complicated. Real, you know, there's no shocks and springs, so it's it's backwards to me. So I have um, a gentleman, Tim Pappas. He helps me out. He knows more about the kart than I do. And then I thought I was the kart owner, and Mrs. Letard explained to me that she was the kart owner. <laughs> so I think what I realized at this point is I'm purely just a sponsor. I'm just the sponsor and dad. And that's actually the, the, the truth is I don't know how to race for fun. I race for 20 years to try to win. Um, 
we obviously are trying to win, but it's with my son. We're trying to have fun. It's supposed to be a family activity, so I just want to be a dumb dad, and I don't work on the cart. I have a guy that works on it, and I'm, I truly am just a, a dad. All right. Well, that's sounds like a good way to enjoy yourself racing. It was fun. We had a blast. You're paying for it. Um, <laughs> but that's good. Um, so, obviously, you you have been in racing all your life. We want to talk to you about some, some hot topics in NASCAR. We're taping this on Tuesday, February 8th, so... Uh, we don't know at this point who the replacement driver is going to be for Tony Stewart, but his injury, um, his back fracture, certainly has prompted a lot of philosophical discussion about what drivers should be allowed to do outside of their cars. And you and I were talking about this last week, and you had some interesting perspective on this. You know, it's different. People don't understand, you know, a driver is not like a quarterback to a football team. He's not a, an employee of the football team. He's a subcontractor hired by race teams to go race, much like a PGA golfer who, who plays for himself. And our season's 40 you know, weeks long. The, probably the most dangerous thing these guys do, not probably, I would say the most dangerous thing these guys do is their job on Sunday. So there's, there's um, you know, I look more at perhaps not the activity, but how the activity was being performed. I think you can do a lot of simple things dangerously if you're silly about it. From everything I've read, um, I haven't talked to anybody firsthand, but I've read some of the stuff that was posted on, uh, you know, on the website, NBC Sports, and, and it seems like they were – you know, out having a good time, and, and it was just an unfortunate circumstance. And I think that that's reality. That's kind of life. You see that in other sports. People get hurt doing things like that. I think there's obviously a big bullseye around Tony because he's had a hard time staying in the car for one reason or another in the last three years. That makes him more susceptible to this conversation. But I really think the pressure really lands on the executives at the race team because I feel that for the fans or the sport to ask a driver to try to judge this or measure this himself is – is a mistake when you're talking about you know tens of millions of dollars that are spent on these race teams. I think the executives are going to have to step in and put some sort of boundaries if that's what they feel needed in the contracts. And that's a that's a murky place to be, but I don't know how any other way to do it at this point. As somebody who knows like the importance of, I mean, Dale Jr. said many times about you, no one's better at like kind of coaching him and being a motivator, cheerleader, but also sort of being a taskmaster, knowing like how to how to essentially coax drivers like like you're a jockey on a horse and make sure that you're not restraining them too much, so to speak, during the course of a race. How much – is there too much that you can restrain a driver outside the car? And and is that sort of, I guess, the, the dilemma? You know, I think that at the end in my career, my job was to uh, build a race team and make sure that myself and the driver were prepared for, for battle when it came Sunday afternoon. I had – guys way smarter than me setting up the race cars and doing everything and what I learned is that to be prepared for a race is to be um, you know confident prepared understand the racetrack you're going to but at the same time to eliminate distractions and distractions come from all sorts of life but it can also come from you know not being able to be who you are and these guys are race car drivers because they're advent you know look at look at the realm of the race car driver Jimmy Johnson is going to go snow skiing and mountain biking uh, you know, Denny Hamlin's playing basketball or golf. Uh, Trevor Baines, obviously, on his road bike. So I, I find it a struggle to say on a Monday, well, you need to be in better shape. And then when a guy falls on his bicycle, you say, well, why were you on a bike? You need right. to be, you, you know. So racing is not like another sport. I truly believe that any of these activities these guys do test their reflexes. It doesn't have to be an Xfinity car. You know, it can be a dune, sand dune car. It can be a four-wheeler. It can be a motorbike, a complete golf. Whatever it is, they need to make sure they're using their brain and using their physical abilities. And if that's, you know, 
at what level that is that they're gonna have to figure out. i mean look at hendry motorsports battles this all the time casey kane loves to drive sprint cars right. you know right. kyle larson was in sprint cars all winter right um you, you know you had kurt bush run the the indianapolis 500 i mean how many did what's a what's a susceptible risk I think the only one who can decide what a susceptible risk is is the man who owns or the woman who owns the race team. Right. And it's going to have to go and fall on their shoulders. I mean, like you said, like there have been instances don't like to just run on the edge all the time, right? Well, and that level of driver, there isn't a bucket full of drivers somewhere to go get. Right. So the business side is if Chip Ganassi doesn't want Kyle Larson to run sprint cars, does Kyle Larson drive for Chip Ganassi? And nobody wants to have that conversation, but that's fact. Um, you know, if, if – and it's not I – mean, I pick on Kyle because he's probably the the young, up-and-coming talent that everybody circles as this kid is going to have a great career. There's a lot of them, but he's one of them. You know? right. So Chase Elliott runs late model races. He was just at a late model race that Jeff Burton's son was in. So right. does Rick Hendrick say you can't run – you know, where is the line? And there is no clear-cut answer because I think owners are going to have to balance the business of NASCAR with the risk of having a driver do other things. Um you know, it, it's it's there is no right answer. Um, the right answer is hope. Hope you don't get hurt because <laughs> these teams are built around one person. You know, there isn't a backup driver. Right, right. Um, as I said, Tuesday, February eighth. We we don't know who the replacement is going to be at this point, but we know that for let me butcher his name for the first time, Mike Bukarevitz. Booga from from here on out. You don't have to pronounce it, Steve. I'm just uh, going to nod every time you say it. <laughs> we know that he is in for a lot not just as a crew chief who now has to worry about switching drivers but as first time not just a sprint cup crew chief first time ever being a crew chief to be honest i think the pressure's off him really i think the pressure's gone down interesting why you know first year tony stewart three-time sprint cup champion um coming off a down year but the expectations have to be that this year was going to be better it was his final year i think shr was surrounding him um, the whole sport, I mean, look, we're all analysts and you're, we all supposed to be impartial, but we're also people. And I think anyone who said they weren't, you know, at least cheering for Jeff Gordon at some point to have a, not win a championship, but be in Homestead with a chance. How could you say that, you know, you weren't cheering for him. I think it was the same way with Tony Stewart. I don't think there's someone in the garage, someone in the stands, someone in the sport that didn't just hope he would have a good year. Mm -hmm. uh, what does that mean? I don't know. Well, that unfortunately, or fortunately fell at the feet of, of, uh, Booger Ravitch. Uh, how'd I do? Was that close? I think, I think okay, you, got, I'm going I think you nailed it. it but, you know, it fell at the feet, and he had to determine how to do that. And and um, I think his workload has gone up and yeah. his stress load has gone down. Yeah. yeah. Because okay. now, um, look, like I said, there aren't backup drivers out there. Who's he going to go get? I don't know. You know, there's a hundred different ways. This isn't, in my mind, the reason we don't know on February 8th who the driver is is because it's not one driver moving. I think this is going to be a very complicated situation of uh, multiple moving parts. I could be wrong. I don't know. I have no first-hand information. I have no idea who it might be. But, uh, you know, there are so many storylines that go with that 14 car. We know who the driver is going to be in 17, and he's driving for Harry Scott in 16. We have, uh, you know, bigger-name drivers that have taken – maybe less financed teams are they contractually obligated are there guys in the xfinity series that could you know we don't even know the timeline of his injury there's so many question marks that i think it's a complicated answer we don't know but as far as the crew chief goes um i don't think he wishes upon it i think he would much rather have the stress sure but i think he's going to sleep better in daytona unfortunately because he knows he doesn't have 
superstar Tony Stewart behind the wheel. Because zero expectations. And now, like you said, all he's, he's got more work, but it's just put my head down and get that work done. And whether yeah. regardless of results, I'm good. I think the key now is um, from everything I read and hear that um, Tony Stewart hopefully will recover and get back on the car at some point in 2016. And his goal is to take the blueprint from the 18 car. I thought that they did not let Kyle Busch being out of the car hinder their um, approach. When Kyle Busch got back into the car, they had speed right away. Um, I think that's his goal. I think his goal is to see what the 14 car struggled with last year, try to lean on the 4 and the 41 who seem to have speed, try to connect some of those dots. He's intimately involved with the 4 for so many years. He knows what they have. Maybe start to test some of those theories. You have to be very careful because you're going to have somebody else behind the wheel. But there's still, you know, engineering-based theories that he could probably go ahead and start testing now. So when Tony Stewart straps back in, which would now be even more a limited time than one season, that um, they have the speed. You, you went through this with Dale Jr. missing a couple of races and of the 2012 season with the concussion. What, what was it like for a team? What's it like for a crew chief to deal with it? Uh, you know, it was um, – I think that's why I, I make the statement that there's less pressure. Uh, there was a lot of pressure to race with Dale. I loved the pressure. I wanted to compete. Um, the race team was spectacular. They, 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 you wouldn't know there was any pressure on them. They showed up every, every week ready to go. Um, and when Dale had to sit out with his concussions, Regan Smith uh, filled the role admirably. He, he gave great feedback, but it's just different. You know, it, it's, it's, um, it's not the same as going into the battle with the guy that you thought was going to be in the seat. You still have obligations to your sponsors and to your team to go do the best you can. It's just very different. Um, the hardest part was to the hardest part was to kind of you know you've lost your partner in crime you know anytime you want to you you're going to talk to the team anytime you're going to talk to the media or anytime you know that person becomes a huge part of the decision making process even more than you know um, even if they don't really make the decision they might sit in the corner in the lounge and have you know just a, a general opinion and you talk about the communication and how important it is well it's very hard to build a relationship with someone that you know is temporary mm-hmm. and that's that's I think was the most difficult part and. Um, especially in Dale's case, because his was a head injury. You know, he was really removed. We didn't bother him. I mean, he had to rest his brain. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't really have any sort of input. I think there's going to be some um, opposite opportunity there with Tony, seeing how it's a back. I'm no doctor, but I would imagine if it's if it's a back injury, he's going to be able to, I don't know, read the notes, sit in on phone call. I don't know what sure. all he can take part in. But I think if I was Mike, I would have Tony Stewart involved in as much as possible. Because that way when he came back, we didn't have to update him on how it went. Right. He, he was involved from the word go. I mean, I guess there's a good chance. I hadn't thought about this until you mentioned it. But, yeah, Dale Jr. couldn't be there because he had to be in a dark room. and Right. Like, I, I, I actually – it was all I could do not to – I mean, Dale and I text every day. You yeah. know, we were great friends. We still are great friends. But back then we were even closer friends. We text. We talked about, you know, family and race cars and the weather and music and everything. Right. And – it was I lost more than my race car driver. I lost kind of my race car wow. driver and my signing board and a buddy, and and it was um, you know it was hard not to text him about anything. So it was a unique situation. Um, you know, Mike obviously doesn't doesn't know any better. This is his first year crew chiefing, but um, he just needs to keep his head down, keep working on his equipment. He's going to. They have Rodney Childers and Greg Zipadilla. They have so many smart people over there at SHR. I think the goal is, you know, to. The goal of any multi-car organization is to make sure everyone is running at its potential. And right now, the four is spectacular. The 41, I would measure, is at its potential. It can always be better, but they run well. The 14 is well below the potential. And I even think that the 10, um, 
I think that she could run better. And I think, um, you know, it's up to the, the, the race teams and the engineering staff to find something that suits her. And then she has to take a little responsibility on, on building that race team as well. But, uh, I think the 14 was definitely the weakest SHR car last year. Yeah, yeah, which is surprising given you're talking about a three-time champion who it seemed all indications were in the preseason. He came in with the swagger. You thought it was going to be the old Tony Stewart, and then he, he never really had it. I saw it in 2011 uh, to win five of the ten, general, yeah. Yeah. 10 chase races. You know, that's not the right spring combination. That's not hitting the wedge set right, right that day or a good pit stop. Yeah, That is um, one of the most talented – people to ever drive a vehicle of any sort deciding that this is going to work and a crew chief that for whatever the reason uh whatever the motivation obviously there was a lot of complications between him losing his job all of that for whatever dysfunctional relationship the group had and whatever their motivations were to show up on friday morning they showed up they showed up fast and they were they i mean they they went and they you know, I feel bad for Carl Edwards. I was there in 2007 when Jimmy Johnson beat Jeff Gordon for the championship. I didn't feel like we lost the championship. I felt like Jimmy Johnson won it. Yeah. In 2011, Carl Edwards didn't lose the championship. Tony Stewart just went and won it. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't thought about this till you mentioned it, Steve. But, like, yeah, like in 2013 when he breaks his leg, he's doing all the rehab. He's at home. There's not. It's not really a situation where he can be at the track. I mean, Denny Hamlin was at the track, I think, two weeks after the, the he fractured his back. And granted, that was a more serious fracture, but – it sounds as if the timetable that people are saying could be for Stewart, I mean, maybe he's back at the track sooner than anybody could think. I think what people underestimate is, you know, Tony Stewart had a massive leg injury that he yeah. had to recover from physically. And then he had uh, a situation that had to sit him out of the car again. You know, technology in these cars changes ridiculously fast. Now that I haven't been a crew chief for a year, I feel right now I could go to the Daytona, sit on top of the pit box and call the strategy. I think I could build a race team. But if you ask me what bump stop versus how much camber versus how much caster, a year removed is a year removed. Yeah. I would have to lean a lot of guys. It's the same for a driver. Yeah. I think that as the rule package changes, as Goodyear changes the type of tires they bring, there are all of these changes through the sport every month, every quarter, every year that don't really get documented because that's life in NASCAR. Well, when a driver, even as talented as Tony Stewart, sits out, my point would be if you take the best road course driver in the world and he shows up at Watkins Glen, he can't beat the sprint cup guys because they race sprint cup every week right even the best sprint cup guy if he sits a few weeks out he has a hard time kyle bush what kyle bush did last year getting in that car and being that fast is really remarkable i give a lot of credit to him staying engaged uh to his crew chief keeping the team on point and to his teammates because i think they developed the equipment without him there um i think it was a lot you know tony stewart was out the same time kevin harvick kind of showed up Kevin Harvick really developed equipment that obviously works for him. Um, the no ride height rules kind of showed up that same time. The right. front spring packages changed. I, I lived with Jeff Gordon when the big sway bar package came. That was a battle. When the coil bound came, that was a battle. You know, some of these drivers that are so talented have a feel. And if you can't get them the feel, they're not, it's not video games. You just can't put in what the four has and expect Tony Stewart to go drive it. So it's just one more setback, you know, when you only have a year and now you're starting to miss weeks. And then even when you come back to talk about, oh, maybe there's an acclimation period. I don't know if there's an acclimation period that can be afforded at this point. Right, right. So maybe even if Tony Stewart isn't back in the car, if he's back at the track and just – unlike when he, when he injured his leg, if he's just back at the track Absolutely. and around everything and seeing, like, the setup stuff that, like you're saying, changes. Maybe it will be a benefit. Basis. Yeah, maybe Maybe he can stand back 10,000 feet and listen to Kevin Harvick. And yeah. Rodney Childers. Maybe he could listen to Kurt Busch and Tony Gibson. Maybe there's something there that will turn a light on because Tony Stewart can drive. Mm -hmm. 
they're just there's something there that has to be has to happen and it has to be um you know if I knew what it was I'd be over there trying to suggest it I don't know what it is but hopefully maybe uh, maybe that some good can come out of it not to dwell on the negative but the point you raised about those two weeks without Dale Jr. Was that the worst stretch for you as a as a as a Cup crew chief? Or I mean, uh, it, it was the, you know, it was just so unnatural. You know, I never had to every since I started at Hendry Motorsports in 1995. Um, the goal was to go be the fastest in the practice, win on sit on the pole, win the race accumulate the most point you know it's so specific the goal and you always had somebody kind of arm in arm with you and Regan did an admirable job of filling in but I mean he was the fill-in so it's very it's it's just different it's so hard it's like almost learning a new sport having a you know another driver in the car yeah what um when you look back at, at your time with, with Jeff Gordon, you mentioned the, the, the struggles you, you had there with, like, sway bar changes and that, that, that kind of thing. Like, what, what was your maybe your best and worst point during, during that stretch? Oh, the best and worst point came in the same year. Um, we came in 2007. We won a ton of races. We had a tremendous amount of speed. We went. We won uh, Talladega and Charlotte back-to-back. And I remember leaving – I think it was Charlotte was the second win. This is in the chase of 2007. We had an 85-point lead, leaving Charlotte with five races to go. That was without a doubt the highlight of our career. Of all the wins, that was the one that was on our way for a championship. And four races later, we finished tenth at Phoenix. And the walk from uh, we were probably down to pit stall five or six. From there to the garage was probably the longest walk in my career because you realize at that point that that you're not going to win a championship, and they don't come around every day. And um, you know we had a lot of great runs. He taught me a lot about the sport, a lot about how to race, a lot about life in general. Um, and I think what made that so hard that year was that, you know, what do you give a guy that has everything? I wanted to give Jeff Gordon a championship. I felt I owed that to him, and I thought we had, and it became real at Phoenix that we had not. Yeah. Um, look, Looking ahead this season, speed weeks, I know we haven't really had a chance to see cars on track. There was the test at Vegas, but there was a lot of discussion that that might have not have been too revelatory because of the conditions and tires and whatnot do you have a sense for what you're expecting and granted Daytona is is unique in its own element so who knows if we really know what's going to be the, the, the layout to Atlanta but do you have a do you have a sense of how you think it's going to unfold no I think it's going to be very interesting because speed weeks is a standalone um there have no rule changes in speed weeks. Same restrict plate package. I think they might have switched it like a 64th or some small tweak right. for speed. Yep, but it's the same package. Um, I thought Dale Earnhardt Jr. was, without a doubt, the most dominant car on the speedways last year. Um, second to him would be Jeff Gordon, who's not in the field. Um, so it's going to, you know, where is the 88? It's very hard to continue to improve when you're the best. I thought he was the best. Um, you know, you have. Kyle Busch didn't get a chance to run Daytona last year, the defending champion coming back. So I think Daytona is its own animal. Um, and to be honest, it used to have a lot to do with a lot because there was points. But with the chase, you know, Daytona is all about who on Sunday of the Daytona 500 gets to win um, what I consider a career-changing event. Mm-hmm. If you win the Daytona 500, you're not the winner. You're the champion of the Daytona 500 for a reason. Um, you know, it will change the course of a driver, crew chief, team owner. You know, it is a major milestone in motorsports. Your life is markedly different. You Absolutely. Like February 2014. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, when you become a Daytona 500 champion, um, 
I was never fortunate enough to win a championship as a crew chief. So when I am introduced, it is what I call, you know, it is an event that becomes a line on the resume. Mm-hmm. You know, that's major. You know, when we do NASCAR Americas, we talk about how many times Richard Petty won the Daytona 500. We don't talk about the other tracks. We talk about there. Right. Um, that track is different. That race is totally different. Um, so that's a standalone. And then it's then this season, I'm telling you, this schedule is tough. You go to t- Atlanta, a ruthless track, old, wore out, bumpy, crazy fast, low downforce, no extra practice time. I think it's awesome. I think it's exactly what we need. We don't need practice. These guys are supposed to be the best drivers in the world in a stock car. Drop the green. I hope it rains Friday and Saturday. I hope we get 15 minutes of practice. Like, <laughs> let's go. Drop the green. I want to see who who is ready. Yeah. And I think we're going to see that when we go to Atlanta. And then what makes this so difficult is we go to a West Coast swing. Right. You know, so now you're gone. So now you kind of guessed right, and you get one shot at Atlanta to get it right. But then you go out west for for Las Vegas and for Fontana and for Phoenix. And it's if you're wrong on one of your packages, your approaches – you're spending a lot of time with uh, UPS or FedEx shipping stuff back and forth trying to get prepared because that is a tough West Coast swing. Yeah, there was a lot of discussion about that last year, obviously, with that being the debut. Uh, and the schedule, obviously, is always talked about incessantly about how grueling it is. You had to manage people and travel and, and stress loads for them. Is it a good thing, you think, to spend three? I mean, there, there were some instances last year where teams didn't bring crew members home, but they seemed okay with it because the trade-off was worth it, not having to go back and forth. I think we have an obligation to the sport is bigger than the teams. So I don't think um, that the teams or whether it's tough on the teams should be a consideration. I think that the fan who comes out and buys a $100 ticket should be the consideration. And if they feel that – I mean, where else are you going to go? Yeah. If you're going to start racing in February – don't go to Rockingham. <laughs> yeah, I don't want that to go didn't work out very state. well. It's just yeah. too cold. You know, the yeah. fa- that, like, where else are you going to go? Yeah. Vegas is great. Phoenix is great. Maybe we could have a second race at Miami, but we don't. Yeah. Right. So you can only go to certain climates if a season's going to be 40 races long. I think instead of, you know, instead of is the West Coast swing, it's really do we need 36 races? And if you say, yes, we need 36 races, then I say go west where the weather's good. And, and, and you know, you got a little bit of variety. You have a one mile out there, a mile and a half, and a two mile. It is definitely difficult. But I will also say, as much as points matter, and Jeff Burton will say points matter, and I agree, they don't have the same emphasis they've always had for a lot of the teams. Yeah. Not not to put you on the spot and to ask a question that could get both of us in trouble, but do we need 36 races in NASCAR, do you think? Um, I'm not the guy to ask. Um, you know, I don't know. I listen to these guys that run dirt. They run 100 races a year. Yeah. And I, I'm a true believer. I, I, my opinion, if you're asking Steve Latart's opinion on the schedule, 36 races doesn't bother me as much as three days at every track. I don't think we have to be at all these tracks for three days. I'm fine with going to 36 races. I'm fine with going to 36 markets. I'm fine with putting 36 races on a Sunday afternoon that people can watch on television. I just don't know if we need to be at all these tracks Friday. And I think NASCAR's on board with that, right? They're yeah. changing their schedules. They're yeah, exactly. working on their hours. So. You know, it's easier said than done, though. But I think in a perfect world with no details and no repercussions and, and not having to figure out any of the problems, it'd be great to go for a couple of days. Yeah. You know, show up, have a little tech, have a little practice, have a little qualifying, have a little bit more practice and race. And to, yeah. how you do that, I don't know. But I don't think 36 races is as big as a concern as just, you know, if you just eliminated a day, that's 36 days on the road these guys wouldn't have to do. But yeah. I don't know how you do that. And to that end, I mean, people looking at schedules – aren't probably going to understand this unless they're they're immersed in it but like when nascar says okay instead of opening up the garage at 
7 a.m. first practice at 1. Now we're going to open up at 10 a.m. first. That, that makes a pretty big difference. It makes teams. a huge difference on travel. You know, I, I think we're going to see a lot between this race team alliance and this potential charter system and all this stuff. You know, I think the sport in general is going to move more and more to the fact that the stuff that doesn't have to be complicated isn't. Maybe travel can get more organized. You know, I know that uh, Rob Coffin's gone on the record to say that's one of our big things. We can get mm-hmm. the teams to travel together. Well, when the teams start traveling together, you don't have to build in 24 hours of insurance. You could go down Friday morning to some of these racetracks. Um, you know, we as a sport can do things smarter that the fan never sees, doesn't affect them. Has You know, nobody cares when the teams get to Atlanta. All they know is they want to see a little practice, see some qualifying, and they want to see a great race on Sunday. Yeah. And I think there is low-hanging fruit, and I think everyone knows it. And now all kinds of smart people are working on it. That we can we could get a bunch of low hanging fruit that makes everything better with zero consequences on the product on Sunday, and I think that's possible. Speaking of that whole collaborative process, uh, that obviously resulted in NASCAR going in a different direction with this year's rules, with going with what the drivers want, which of course is less downforce. I know you claim not to necessarily be a car guy, but like, no. <laughs> which is amazing when you think about it. Like you were the head man for so many years turning wrenches, but you had other people that you claim. Yeah. I mean, I I just organized my team around my weaknesses and the race car was always my weakness. So I, I I built the people, but knowing all that, um, what do you, what do you think about this low, lower down force package? I I think it's spectacular NASCAR, whether we like it, don't like it. We could talk about teams and owners and everything we want to talk about. But the simple fact is that the men and women that drive these race cars are the stars. They will always be the stars. They should be the stars. Um, they have the natural ability. They have the, the star power. And I want to see which one of those is the best. And the more downforce we take on the cars, the harder they are going to be to drive. Um, some will still drive better than others. But to create a competitive lap time with less downforce is going to t- lean on driver's ability more. Right. And I think it's kind of like why is the U.S. Open at the hardest golf course? Right. right. Because they want to see the greats rise up. You know, you don't see 32 under or 25 under or 20 under at a U.S. Open. You know, at, sometimes it's even par because they want it to be miserable. Yeah. They don't care if the golfers like it. They want to see who can be the best. I'm of that mentality. I don't care if as the driver turns into turn three at Atlanta, he thinks this is fun or, man, I'm having a good time. I want him to be sweating bullets, working hard because – that's what the fan deserves to see. And you know what? Deep down, the great drivers, that's what they want. We right. just heard Eric Almarola on NASCAR America. The guy's in great shape. He's, you know, was at a dirt track with his grandfather growing up. That's what he's used to seeing. He wants it back in his control. I have yet to hear a driver say they don't want them. I don't want to say driving bad, just more difficult to drive. They yeah. want more talent be necessary to create good lap time. Yeah, but yet it takes a lot for a driver to understand or see that greater good. I mean, it's such a selfish sport and all they want is what's going to make the car drive better. And sometimes there's that balance, like what's good for drivers sometimes is disproportionate. It's inversely proportional, well, I should say, to what's good for fans. I right? think we all had to learn, right? So I think what happened to these drivers are, you know, what would you know, I didn't know either. You know, I have this statement now because I've seen what's gone all the water under the bridge for the last little bit. Right. But if you're a driver and you say, yeah, we want them to drive good. And then all of a sudden there's someone who you think you're better than. Yeah. And you're an equipment that you think is better than theirs. And you can't pass them. At some point, you have to say, okay, this is no good. Because, you know what, it's a self-centered sport, and I'm better than he is. And my car is better than his is. And I have a better motor than he does, yet I can't pass them. This is no good. Yeah. They are all smart enough to realize that that is not, that is not good for the sport. So, um, you know, listen, I don't think we've uh, 
you know, we're never going to talk the end of rule changes, but I think this direction is going to be good. It's going to mm-hmm. be fun. I really enjoyed both Kentucky and Arlington last year, so I think it's going to be great. Yeah, ditto. Um, last topic for you. You mentioned that water under the bridge, new perspective that you have now versus when you were in the garage 24-7. Uh, I asked Kyle Petty this week. I'm Every NBC sports person I bring on here, I'd like to f- finish with this. Uh, year two, obviously you're much better prepared. You, you have a much better understanding of what – you're you're in for this year in your current job uh what 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 surprised you about the first year and and how how was it different making that transition what surprised me about the first year is hopefully what's going to keep Jeff Burton and I working hard in year two three four and five and that is I took for granted how much I knew getting up or how much I learned getting up at 5 a.m every day going to the shop um you know when it's your entire life your entire existence just the race teams and racing is around you, you inadvertently learn so much about the sport. And covering it from the television side, um, I had to make sure I worked hard on staying in touch with the sport because the sport moves rapidly. Well, you know, what that means is in year one, um, I spent a tremendous amount of time learning television because I didn't know the media and I didn't know how to bring the viewer in um, and every year from year one, I'm going to spend less time on television and more time on racing. Right. And that's going to just continue to trend out into the distance. You know, year two, I'm going to spend, you know, a little less in year three and year four and year five. And then probably there's a time out there five, six, eight, ten years from now where, you know, very little will be spent on television itself. It'll be a, a comfortable area for me to work. I'll have to learn about maybe some new technologies but I will spend more and more and more and more time in the garage area because that's where I, A, that's where I love to be. All my friends are there. But more than anything, man, I love the sport and I love racing, and I want to know how it all works so I can explain to the fan how I think it should be done. You'll never be maybe as smart as you were in year one in terms of knowing what teams are doing, right? Because you'll never have that perspective of like, I no, was just but, in these garages. But what I did learn is I don't need to report or analyze the race at a Cruci's level because the fans wouldn't be very entertained. Mm-hmm. It would be boring. Yeah. If they knew the details that crew chiefs look over on a Sunday night, they would say, this is like, I mean, it's, it's like financial guys. Right. You know, it'd be like, you, so you just studied the tenths of a percent over the last five years. Wow. That sounds pretty boring. Right. A crew chief's job on a Saturday night is pretty boring. I mean, you dig through <laughs> reams and reams and reams of reports right. to turn over five stones, to find one shiny penny, to find a half a 10th of a second. And that's like, pot of gold and it's like all minutiae until right. you find like that one right. half, so half second i tell myself that if any point i don't feel i could stand on top of a pit box and do what i did best which was strategize and call the race then i'm not i have not studied hard enough hmm. now i don't need to know well you need to run this rubber bump stop over this steel one because the track's a little bumpy i need to know conceptually what all the teams are trying to do so i can explain it to the race fan but i don't have to be able to set up a car like jagging house yeah but I feel that the strategy of the race, I should always be able to understand because that is my responsibility in the booth. You did, I think it's fair to say, even though I'm biased, you did an excellent job in year one, very positive reviews. And the consistent refrain I heard was because you were so good at putting it in layman's terms. I've heard, heard Sam Flood say numerous times publicly that he heard you on Sirius Satellite Radio and liked the way you were able to describe things for the fan. And that was one of the reasons NBC Sports hired you. But yet, it sounds like... When you're a crew chief, you don't look at it that way. Have you always had that ability to, when you're out there, like, you know, when you're not buried in your laptop and looking through setup sheets, when you're out in front of people spreading the gospel, do you, do you 
approach it differently. And well, you got to remember, though, I wasn't a car guy. Exactly. Yeah, maybe that's it. All yeah. I did for 20 years, not 20, for 10 years, yeah, I worked on cars. for, But for the 10 or 11 years I ran race teams, all I really did was study people as hard as I could study people and be a really good translator. And that is when Dale Jr. understand, study him, study his feedback, study his mannerisms, study his personality, study his inflection, study everything about his voice. So when he's explaining to Kevin Mendering what the car's doing, and Kevin Mendering, who I consider one of the best car people I've ever met, is staring at him with this glassy-eyed engineering look like I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I had to be in the middle to translate. Know enough engineering and enough driver lingo to get the driver Kevin's information and Kevin the driver's information. And when, when those dots connected, we went fast. So when you're explaining to fans on television, like why this guy's better, like I, I saw you do this last year, like explaining like why Kyle Busch is so good on pit row. When you're like connecting all those dots for the, the, the viewer, it's sort of the same concept. As I, exp I put myself that if I was standing in my living room in front of my son who's 12, my wife, my father-in-law, and my father. My father raced his entire life. I still have to entertain him. still have to educate him. My father-in-law is a construction worker. He has zero racing experience other than what he's seen me do. He has to be entertained and educated. My wife, who's an attorney, she has to be entertained and educated. And my 12-year-old son has got to think that this is cooler than picking up his iPad. That's all I do is I think about that group of people and I make sure that there's something in there for everyone. And it's, it's not everything for everyone. But in a 30-second spiel, I want to make sure that everyone says, oh, man, that, that was cool or that made sense or now I understand it. And the guy who thought he already knew it, he goes, I didn't know that one little part. Right. So that's the idea. you got to kind of cover the game quickly, efficiently, and then be quiet and let Rick Allen do his deal. <laughs> We're, we're a long way from July, and you'll be on NASCAR America a lot between now and then. But, like, what are you looking forward to most year two? Um, is there anything in particular that is going to be different or you're excited about um, the broadcast? I'm excited to start over in July when the world moves a little slower. You know, we went there in July, and I had never been on. We had practiced a ton, and I thought Sam Flood and Jeff Banky did a great job, the, the executives and the powers to be at NBC, of preparing us. But there's still, you know, game time. And – I loved it, but I'm not sure I got a chance to appreciate it because yeah. it really went pretty quick. And I think this year, um, you know, as it slows down, I appreciate it more. It's kind of like, you know, people always say your kids grow up and then you know they're gone before you know it. That's kind of how last year went. I was like, man, yeah. Daytona's cool. Homestead, wow, it's over. Now I want to I try to take a little bit more time to just appreciate it. Because what I learned last year is I am a huge race fan, and there are moments that I step back in the booth and Rick gets mad, he starts kicking me <laughs> because I stopped talking because I'm watching a great race. Yeah. And I got to remind myself, oh, wait, I got to keep telling people what they're watching because right. this is a great race. So I think there's, I'm going to hopefully get just more comfortable where I can appreciate this great race and just get up there and talk about it. Last one for you. And I, I know a lot of junior fans probably have wondered this. Uh, how much did you miss it not, not being on top of the pit box last year? Every Sunday morning. I love my job with NBC. I loved being a crew chief. And every Sunday morning, I thought one great thing about my new job was I wouldn't have the pressure and the anxiety of trying to run good in the sleepless nights on Saturday night. And what I learned very quickly was that was what I loved about my job the most, is that on Saturday nights when you can't sleep, it's for all the right reasons. 
when Sunday morning, when you are too nauseous to eat breakfast, it's for all the right reasons. The pressure of intensity leading up to the driver's meeting, trying to put a car on the racetrack, trying to win a race for 20 years. That's what I did. And I woke up Sunday mornings with no real, you know, it didn't matter to me who won. It truly didn't. I had friends in the sport, but, you know, I want to see the best car win. I was rooting more for a good race. That uh, all the way down to Homestead, I don't think that'll ever go away. And yeah. I think it shouldn't. If it ever goes away, I'm not sure I'll be as as uh, entertaining in the booth. I think what makes me good in the booth is that I have the drive and desire to do those guys' job. And uh, But I wouldn't trade it for the world. I love explaining to the race fans in their living room what's going on in the racetrack. It's a sport that's been great to be, great to my family. And I just love it. Like I said, I was in Jacksonville for three days in the rain racing a go-kart. So, you know, racers are racers. We can't help it. I hear you. All right. Thanks for being here, man. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. Appreciate it. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.